Folks, uh, there are some some days in history that we all remember uh, vividly or re- reminisce about, uh, and certainly yesterday was one of them. After seventy years, uh, we remember the two thousand three hundred and ninety sailors and marines that went down at Pearl Harbor, and we lost there about uh, uh, twenty four ships, uh, either sunk or or terribly uh, uh, damaged, a bunch of aircraft, but the human lives are the main thing. And so December the 7th, I mean, ever since I was a little boy, December the 7th, 1941, we know the exact time that the Japanese began to bomb us. And then, of course, uh, 9-11. And we remember that uh, 2,996 folks lost their lives when these aircraft hit World Trade Center and the Pentagon. And uh, in, in a field in Pennsylvania. They're very important days that we remember. July the 4th, 1776, we remember. These are days that change history, human history. And uh, if you were to, as a historian, if you were to try to list the, the top events in human history, uh, it would be a very uh, interesting task to try to figure out what are the top 100 tasks. I got a book one time that, that had the top 100 things in it. And of course, there was listed the, the birth of Jesus Christ and the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, or at least I think it maybe was the birth. I'm not sure the historian would have admitted there was a physical resurrection. But, but uh, the event of Jesus Christ was certainly uh, a game changer. But if you were to try to figure out what is the most important event that occurred after the Jesus event, after his birth and his death, his resurrection, and then Pentecost. You know, which, which event would you pick that was the biggest game changer of every event? I, I think it's the event we're going to study today. I really do. I think this is the biggest moment in world history uh, since the day of Pentecost, and it's the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Uh, that conversion led to evangelism and church planting in areas of the world that had never heard the gospel. It led to the establishment of the Church of Jesus Christ in Asia, Minor, and in Europe, which became the staging ground for evangelizing the world over the next 20 centuries. Uh, and undoubtedly, this event is the most pivotal event in all of human history. So it's a great honor to read this text and to be thinking about it. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 9 as we look at it. And we're going to see that it not only is, a, uh, is an event in history that changes the very scope of human life uh, ever since that moment, uh, but it's also one of the most important events for us to look at in terms of its application to our own lives. I don't think anything could be more foundational for us as men than this text. Let's take a look at it. Uh, This will be Acts chapter 9, and we'll read verses 1 through 31. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. 
And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he, had, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. 
Amen. Gentlemen, we, uh, as Stott said in his commentary, for those who, who read it, you know, we often will say something like, um, you know, well, I didn't have a Damascus Road experience when we talk about our own personal spiritual histories. And, of course, what we mean by that is that, well, you know, when I became a Christian, I didn't, I didn't see a flash of light. I didn't hear bells. I, didn't, I certainly didn't, like the Apostle Paul, uh, hear a voice. I didn't see Jesus physically. It was not that dramatic. And yet, uh, gentlemen, I want to suggest that uh, what we probably need to learn from this text is that Christian conversion actually is that dramatic. Uh, even though you didn't see a flash of light uh, or you, you, you didn't hear a voice and you didn't see Jesus spiritually there are many, or, or physically, there are many things in which you have in, uh, you have in common with Saul, if you are a Christian. And so what we want to look at is the very nature of Christian conversion this morning. What is it? Now, the word conversion, uh, in Greek, it's, uh, for you uh, Greek scholars, it's epistrepho, if you remember. There's only one instance of it, of, of it in the New Testament. We have many words that are used interchangeably that might be translated conversion, but the, technically the word for for conversion, epistrepho, is only used in Acts 15.3 when Paul is talking about the conversion of the Gentiles. And the word uh, epistrepho just really means to turn around. So basically what you have is just, you, you have someone whose life has turned around. That's what's happening to the Apostle Paul. Now in Christian theology, if we can take a little side road here for a moment, uh, there are two aspects to conversion. There is repentance, that it means you're turning from the direction you were going. So if I'm following, as we, we sang in our uh, Christmas carol just a moment ago, from, from the power of Satan, if I'm following the power of Satan, the power of this world, my own selfishness, according to my flesh, when I turn, I turn away from that. So that's repentance. But I'm repenting unto the Lord. And the other aspect of conversion is faith. In other words, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I begin following Him. So conversion has, is like a coin with two sides, repentance and faith. And that's the total turning that's necessary in order for us to belong to the Lord. And we'll see it here with the Apostle Paul. Now, we need to ask ourselves this morning, what's the difference between a Christian conversion and a political conversion? I mean, after all, Ronald Reagan used to be a Democrat and then he became a Republican. And people said he got converted. Or at least the Republicans said that. The Democrats said he was on his way to... Well, that's another story. But <laughs> what's the difference between someone who decides, you know, instead of being a, a, a free market economist, they want to be a Marxist. You know, and they speak of their conversion to, to Karl Marx. What's the difference between that kind of conversion and the conversion that we're going to see here? Well, I hope we'll have answers for that by the time we get through. But Christian conversion is very distinctive. It's very profound. It is real and it is necessary. We must believe and we must repent in order to enter the kingdom of, of heaven. You won't come in to the kingdom of heaven without conversion. So it's very important that we understand what happened to the Apostle Paul. Now I want us to notice in the first four verses, first of all, Christian conversion comes from God's initiative. Christian conversion comes from God's initiative. Now, this is very important. 
And the reason it's important is because uh, there's, there's a level of certainty once you become converted, once you've experienced this change. And the only reason you can be certain of your ultimate destiny is because God is the one who took the initiative in your life. And we are told about God that what he begins, he brings to full completion, right? Philippians 1, 6. He'll bring it to completion. So if God begins it, if it's actually authored by God, he will finish it. Uh, and this is misunderstood by other religions of the world. There's an instance that uh, G. Fernando in his uh, commentary in Acts tells about when Mahatma Gandhi uh, had met uh, the famous Methodist missionary uh, E. Stanley Jones in India. And uh, he was asked one time, Gandhi was, what do you think of E. Stanley Jones? And he said, well, he's a very fine man. He's just too proud of his religion. And later on, Dr. Jones was told about that comment, and, and E. Stanley Jones said, well, that's understandable. Uh, because if you have an outlook in life uh, like uh, Mahatma Gandhi had, then basically your life consists of all the good things that you can do. And you never could do enough. And so if you're certain of your salvation, you sound very presumptuous and proud. And so from a Hindu perspective, uh, one can understand why I would seem to be too proud. But from a Christian perspective, we're not certain of our eternal life because we think we're good enough or that we've done enough. Oh, no, just the opposite. We know that we are not good enough, never could be. We haven't done enough and never will. Our certainty is based solely upon what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's good enough and he's done enough, not only for one person, but for all who will come to him. And therefore, we're certain. And so what we find in Christian conversion is this is the root of it. Our conversion is the result of his initiative. You see it here clearly in the text. In verses 1 and 2, you cannot mistake the fact that Saul planned much evil. Saul planned much evil. He was still breathing threats and murder. And who is this being threatened against? First of all, against the church. Now, the interesting thing about the Apostle Paul and his threats and murderings against the church, you have to realize, just as E. Stanley Jones said about Mahatma Gandhi, from Gandhi's perspective, I can see how he thinks the Christian religion is an arrogant religion. What you also have to realize here is the Apostle Paul actually thought he was doing the Lord's business by persecuting the church. He thought that he was actually performing righteousness. He thought that he was actually doing missionary work. <laughs> and he was sincere in it. Sound familiar? I mean, does anyone doubt that, that the 19 terrorists who came to, to destroy the Trade Center and the Pentagon and the White House or whatever they were shooting for, that they had good intentions in their own minds? Does anyone doubt that they thought they were doing God's will? It kind of blows the hole in the, old, uh, the whole idea of sincerity as the basis of your religion. People are sincere and sincerely dangerous and sincerely wrong. Paul thought he was doing the Lord's pleasure by destroying his church. And it was, so it was not only against the church, but notice that it was against himself, ironically. The one that Saul is really destroying is himself. I don't know if you've been to the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican in Rome, but if you get a chance to go do it, the lines are long, but it's worth the wait. And uh, when you get in the Sistine Chapel, you look on the, the wall there behind the altar, 
And there you have the great judgment scene of Christ. And on his right hand, you have those who are being resurrected to eternal life. And you see the joy in their hearts on the left hand. You see those who are being uh, condemned to everlasting judgment. And you look at that painting and you realize, you know, one day it's not just going to be a painting. It's actually going to happen. And all of those who have opposed Christ and his church, even those who had, like Paul, good intentions, are coming under the sovereign judgment of this awesome God, this powerful sovereign Lord. And that's what would happen to Saul and to anyone like him unless the Lord changed his heart. Saul planned much evil. But notice in verses 3 and 4, when the light comes from heaven and flashes around him, God planned much good. God planned much good. So God is taking one of the worst moments in the early church when a very powerful man is seeking to destroy the church and God intervenes right there gentlemen, and finds his convert. And he, right there, calls his apostle to the Gentiles. Some of you here are engaged very heavily in Christian ministry. And, well, like myself. And and I look back before I was converted, and I think about what I said and what I did and what I thought about Christian people. And it's just amazing to me that it gives me the opportunity to be one of God's people, and then to seek to encourage God's people when that would be the last thing I would have done with my natural life. So I could intend my own selfish gain. I had intentions for my own self-promotion, and God had other intentions. Guess who won? And that's exactly the way it is here with you and the way it is with, with the Apostle Paul. He planned evil. God planned good. Does it sound familiar? I mentioned the text there in Genesis 45 when Joseph's brothers intended his, his destruction. And when they, when they discovered that their brother Joseph, whom they had sold into slavery, was now the Pharaoh of Egypt, they were terrified because vengeance was obviously going to happen. But Joseph said, not at all. You intended it for evil. No question about it. But God intended it for good. You can look at that text in chapter 45 and it just rends your heart to realize that Joseph understood that God had allowed him to be sold into slavery into Egypt that he might be able to feed his brothers when they were hungry and to take care of them when they were in distress and to provide a place for them to live when they were homeless. That that was God's intent all along. And that's God's intent right here with the Apostle Paul. First of all, God planned good for Saul. And you see that Paul mentions this later on, 1 Timothy 1.16, where Paul says, I was saved as a trophy. I was saved as a trophy to God's mercy, which is to say, everyone's going to say, if Saul can be saved, my stars, anybody can be saved. And notice how merciful God is to Saul. And Paul could never get over this. He said, I'm the least of all the apostles. I persecuted the church. Paul could never get over the idea. He never, to this moment in heaven, he's not over the idea that after persecuting the church, God would be so gracious to him. And so when we get in touch with our own sin, we understand even more God's gracious intentions toward us. And when we're dealing with people in our own workplace, gentlemen, the one that you think is least likely to be a Christian, the one who is most hostile, the one who is really latched on to the new atheism and thinks that Christians are a bunch of idiots and they are the cancer of society and the number one problem in the world. That's what some of the new atheists think. Listen, 
that may be the sign that they're very close to getting converted. (laughs) It's amazing. Sometimes the stronger someone comes out, what that means is they are more deeply going to engage Christianity. So, folks, what we see is that when you've got someone in your workplace and you think they're the last person who could get converted, they may be the very next one. And this is a wonderful example to see it. Paul, God planned good for Paul. And notice, secondly, God planned good for the church. God is taking care of the church. And sometimes when he converts people like that, uh, he's just simply protecting you from persecution. And, you know, you think sometimes there's a wave of persecution coming. There's not anything I can do about it. Well, there may not be anything you can do about it, but there's something God can do about it. And he did it here. He protected the church. He's always looking out for his people. And then look just for the care that he has for the lost. He cares for Saul, and he becomes a trophy of God's mercy. He cares for us so that the the church in Damascus survives. And he cares for the entire world because he recruits the apostle uh, from the life of, of the persecutor Saul. God raises up saviors, judges, rescuers like Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and Nehemiah to take care of his people. That's the first thing. Christian conversion comes from God's initiative. So if you've been converted, you can rest in the notion, the reality, the truth, that you're converted primarily because God has had mercy on you. He has taken uh, action, sovereign action, to bring you to himself. Because our hearts by nature are so hard, we're not coming to him unless he intervenes miraculously in our lives. And that's the reason I say that your conversion ultimately is just as dramatic as the Apostle Paul's because it involves a miraculous transformation of your heart and your affections. And God takes up residence in your life. So Christian conversion comes from God's initiative. Now, if we look at verses 5 through 9, we're going to see that Christian conversion changes our relationships. First of all, our relationship to Jesus Christ. So for the rest of this text, I want us to see how our relationships are transformed by our conversion. And the first and most important relationship is our relationship to God. Or in this case, we could say our relationship to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the first thing that changes. Now, in the Apostle Paul's case, we'll use him as an instance of what happens in Christian conversion. And notice, first of all, in verse 5, he simply notes that Jesus is alive. Paul would have believed that Jesus were dead. He would have believed that the resurrection was a fantasy. He would have believed the resurrection was a myth. But no, now he has to deal with the reality that Jesus is actually alive. Now, if Jesus is alive, this completely transforms our interpretation of what happened at Calvary. If Jesus is dead, then what happened at Calvary was a tragic instance of a man who seemed to be uh, innocent put to death by cruel Roman government, aided by the Jewish religious leadership. That seems to be what happened at Calvary in the eyes of most secular historians. If Jesus is dead, that is the proper interpretation. But if Jesus is alive, there's got to be another interpretation of what happened at Calvary. Because the man was put to death and put in a grave for three days, and then he came roaring out of the tomb. He's alive. What does that mean? And that leads the apostles for the rest of the epistles in the New Testament to reflect upon what actually happened in the Jesus event. 
And what happened at Calvary was that he died because Jesus Christ put the sins of all of his people on the shoulder of his son. And that's the reason that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. And the reason he's, he's raised from the dead is that God accepted that sacrifice in, on behalf of sinners and validated the reception of that sacrifice by the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, we have the interpretation and the meaning of that event. Jesus Christ has returned to intimate fellowship with his Father and there prepares a place for us who too will die and be buried, raised from the dead, and we too will ascend into heaven. So our lives will follow the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul sees him alive now. That shatters all of his paradigms for what Jesus' death meant. And everything now is going to get reworked because he sees that Jesus is alive. Now you say, well, I wish I'd had an encounter like that. Maybe my life would be changed too. Well, gentlemen, let me tell you something. Our lives are transformed through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I know you've heard people say this for years. And sometimes we say, well, what is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, here's what we mean. That when you become a follower of Christ, it's not just that you believe in the resurrection. You do believe in the resurrection. But it's not just believing in the resurrection. It's not just that you believe in the virgin birth. Well, you do believe in the virgin birth. But it's not simply believing in the virgin birth. It's not just that you believe that God sent His Son to save sinners. You do believe that God sent His Son to save sinners, but it's much more than that. In other words, it's more than an intellectual assent to the facts of the New Testament. No, no, no. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is encounter. It's personal encounter that's every bit as real as the encounter that Saul had with Jesus that day. And every bit as life-transforming as the, the event was in the life of Saul. Well, you say, but I, I didn't hear a voice. I didn't even see a light. And I certainly didn't see Jesus Christ personally, physically. So how can I have this personal encounter? So glad you asked. Through the message of the gospel, of the resurrected Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, who comes into our lives... We have an encounter with Jesus Christ that is just as real, just as powerful, and just as effective as the encounter that the Apostle Paul had on the road to Damascus. A personal encounter with Jesus Christ. This means that when I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe because I know Him. I don't just believe in Him because the church tells me. In other words, my faith is explicitly in Jesus Christ personally. I have a, an immediate personal relationship with Him. Not just a relationship with the clergy. Not just a relationship with the sacraments. Not just a relationship with an institution or a relationship with the Westminster Confession of Faith that I study faithfully. No, I have a personal relationship with Him. I talk to Him. He talks to me in His Word. We have a conversation going. And He's a friend to me. He's the king to me. He's my older brother. He's my guide. He's my shepherd. He's the door. He's the gate. He's the lion. He's the lamb. He's alpha. He's omega. He's everything to me. Because I know him personally. He's revealed himself to me by the word and the spirit and through prayer. And yes, it's spiritual. 
But do you think that that means it's not real? If you think that means it's not real, then all of Christianity is obliterated. And the only ones who could possibly be saved are the apostles. Because in order to be saved, we must repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must know Him and have a personal relationship with Him. That's the first thing that the Apostle Paul got on the road to Damascus, was to see that Jesus Christ is alive, to hear His voice, to have a conversation with Him, and know the next day that He really talked to Him and knows Him. And that's exactly what it means for men today who will be disciples. It is not merely intellectual. It involves everything in our lives. Now, secondly, B... Notice that not only is he alive, but he is offended. And when you come to know him, you will see that your sins and your life and your lifestyle are an offense to him. And I'm sorry to say it. It's the bad news of the gospel. It's the bad news of the good news. That when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you come to see him as he is. And he is holy. And if he is holy, he looks upon our lives as unholy. And he is offended by what he sees. Look, look what he says uh, to Saul in verse 5. He said, Saul says to him, Who are you, Lord? And see how Jesus introduces himself. I am Jesus. There he presents himself as Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, alive. And then he says, Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So when Jesus introduces himself, he introduces himself as Jesus Christ, whom you are offending by your sin. And when Jesus presents himself that way to some people, they don't want anything to do with him. They actually believe he is alive. And they actually believe that they have offended him, and they don't want to deal with it. They would rather walk away justified in their own eyes than to be justified through the Lord Jesus Christ, because the only way you can be justified by Christ is to admit that you've offended him. And he introduces himself to Saul as the one whom, uh, who is persecuting Jesus Christ. Now notice here, Saul thought he was persecuting the church. But what he was actually doing is persecuting Jesus Christ. And I think about all the catty things I said about Christian people before I became a Christian at the age of 25. How I persecuted the church and tore down of what was good, and how I made fun of what was holy. And my offense was not primarily against the church. It was primarily against the Lord. And you know why? Because the Lord so identifies with you, a believer, that if anybody touches you because you're a believer, they have touched the Lord Jesus Christ. They have personally offended Him. So if you're in any sort of ministry in your workplace or in this community, and somebody takes out after you because of your Christian faith, you don't have to worry about it one bit. What they're dealing with is your big brother, and they'll have to deal with him. And you don't have to worry about a thing. But Jesus Christ is offended not only when we persecute the church, but when we sin. sin. And we must be saved from this sin. Gentlemen, you can't know the Lord Jesus Christ unless you know him as Jesus, as the word means Savior. And you, you must ask yourself, well, why does he call himself Jesus? Why does he call himself Savior? The reason is you need to be saved. Isn't that the logical implication? If he's the Savior and he's offering to help you, he must think that you need to be saved. Well, what do you need to be saved from? Gentlemen, you need to be saved from your own sin. 
the sin that has wreaked havoc in this world, in your family, with your wife, with your children, with your workmates, the sin that has wreaked havoc in your own life, that is self-destructive, the sin that has left you with a conscience that is condemned and you know it, that's called a guilt complex, the sin that has corrupted everything you put your hands to. You need to be saved from that. And Jesus presents himself as the one who's ready as Dr. Jesus to deal with your stuff. And he says, I'm Jesus against whom you've sinned. Well, that does a couple of things. One is it terrifies us because he has all power and we've offended him. But the other thing, the hopeful thing is, well, we're being introduced to Jesus who's willing to talk to us about our sin. And it's against him that we've sinned. If this problem is to get solved, he's the only one who can solve it. And the good news is... He solves it. He's the Savior. And that's what the Apostle Paul had to find out. He was actually not doing the Lord's will. He was doing the opposite of the Lord's will, and it offended God himself. So he is alive and he is offended. See, when you get to verses 6 through 9, he is the Lord. In other words, he's going to tell you what to do. If he's alive and we've sinned against him and he's the Lord Jesus Christ, we'd be in a lot of trouble. So we submit ourselves to him. We do what he says. And we find that he's very gracious. And what he says is in order to save us and to save those around us. That's exactly what he does in verse 6. He says in verse 6, But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. And then what happens? Saul obeys, and he goes into the city. So he is the Lord, and we obey. Now, it's interesting that the word for uh, conversion or the concept of conversion is usually described in our day as, you know, committing yourself to Christ or deciding for Jesus Christ. And there's a sense in which that, that's okay, I suppose. But notice the difference between that kind of language and the old language in the early part of the 20th century where we spoke of surrendering ourselves to Jesus Christ. If you, if you surrender, you're dropping everything. You give up. If you commit or you decide, you're the one in charge. You're making the decision. You're committing your destiny in a a particular direction. But notice here that Paul just drops. He's blind, gentlemen. There's not a thing he can do. He surrenders to the Lord. He obeys the Lord. And look look at the implications of this. He obeys without knowing everything. He says, and you will be told... What you are to do. If you have to know everything about where your Christian life is going to take you, you're not going to become one. Because the the Lord won't tell you everything on the front end. Why? Because all you need to know is that you've offended Him, and He is offering salvation for you, and eternal salvation is worth everything else in life, and until you grasp that, you're not ready to become His disciples. And if you grasp it, then you don't need to know anything else because eternity is infinitely longer than temporal life. And so temporal life doesn't matter anymore. So notice that Paul didn't know what was going to happen to him. He just goes, you go and you will be told what you're to do. And I mentioned here Genesis 12. Why? Because Abraham was told the same thing. Leave your father's uh, household, leave your country and go to the land that I will show you. 
You're on pilgrimage. You've never been there before, but you're trusting the one who sent you. And I mentioned Genesis 2 also because, hey, look, marriage is a little picture of this. You leave your father and mother and you cleave into your wife. Your mother and father, you know. You've been living with them for 25 years. This woman, you're not real sure of. But you go. Why? Because you're taking covenant vows. And you leave the past and you go into the future. Well, it's the same way with salvation. If you have to have every brick on the road explained to you and exactly where it leads you, you're not ready because you, didn't know, you don't know the fundamental problem you've got. It's so overwhelming, the problem of offending God. And the salvation solution is so overwhelming that when that happens to you, it doesn't make any difference where the Lord's taking you in this life. And then secondly, it's not only without knowing everything, but without controlling everything. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And this reminds me of Peter in John 21, when Peter says, well, what about him? What about John? Where is he going? And Jesus basically says, don't you mind about John? And you're going to be taken where you don't want to go. And you'll be led by others. In other words, Jesus says to Peter, you're going to be, you're going to be martyred. Which was actually good news. Because Peter had been such a coward when he thought he was going to be martyred. He told a maiden that he had never met Jesus before. And now Jesus is assuring him he'll go all the way to his martyrdom. Because God will keep him and preserve him. The same with you. You don't have to control everything. God's going to control it. And thirdly, without having everything, for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Drink. Now, why did he not have to have everything? Because we're told uh, clearly in verse 11 that Saul was praying. Saul was seeking the Lord more than he was seeking food and water. He wanted the Lord. Why? He had now seen him. He knew that he offended him. And he knew that he was the Lord who saves. And Paul wanted him. And this is the reason we're told in Luke 10, verses 4 through 8, that when you go out to share the gospel, don't take a sandal, don't take extra sandals or a bag with you. You don't have to have provisions. God will provide for you along the way. And so we don't have to have everything all stored up. I remember when I was going to go into full-time ministry, when I was finally convinced that I probably ought to pursue this, I had about a six- or seven-year plan. You know, that by the time I save up this kind of money, I can pay for this seminary and and then I can maybe get a a ministry job. I had it all in my head. And before that, I had a 30-year plan. I'd figured out how I could retire at 52. And then I could go into ministry. I had all kinds of plans because I thought I had to have everything. And then finally it dawned on me, you don't have to have anything but him. And then he will take care of you along the way. And some of you are waiting till you get everything figured out before you actually move your ministry plan forward, whatever it is. You're making a big mistake. You don't have to have everything. You don't have to have anything but him. Now, thirdly, as we turn to verses 10 through 19a, we see a very important aspect of conversion. Not only are we converted to Jesus Christ, but Christian conversion changes our relationship to the church. And you'll notice in Saul's case, his conversion was not merely a privatized event on the road to Damascus. It involved a number of other people, very significant people in his life and a whole crowd of people called the church. Now, in verses 10 through 14, first of all, we'll see the church serves us in our conversion. The church served Paul because we are told, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias and God spoke to Ananias. 
And Ananias gave those famous words that Samuel and, and Abraham and Isaiah and others gave. Here I am, Lord. That is, speak, Lord, your servant listens. Here I am. Tell me what to do. That's what Ananias said. And God did this for Saul. And notice that he does it even when those folks don't want to. The church is here to serve you even if the church doesn't want to. And God's going to make that church serve you even if it doesn't want to. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your ethnic group is. It doesn't matter whether people want to serve you. God's going to tell that church to serve you. Why? You're his disciple. Even when they don't want to. And here's what Ananias said. Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints. God, do you know how bad this person is? Do you know what he's likely to do to us? Or some people say, you want us to take in the drunks and the prostitutes? you know what would happen to the reputation of our church? Do you know what, what destructive uh, consequences, Lord, this could have? Like we're going to teach the Lord about what kind of church he's supposed to have. That's what Ananias was doing, teaching the Lord. The Lord says, thank you, Ananias. <laughs> but then he says, go. God says to him, go, Ananias. I heard your arguments. Thank you for the Sunday school lesson. Now go. And why? Well, because we are his chosen instruments. He says, he is a chosen instrument of mine. To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He says, Ananias, I'm telling you what. This is not just, not just a man that I saved. I just happened to save the apostle to the Gentiles. And you know what? Sometimes you may be reluctant to deal with somebody in the church or to help somebody. They don't seem very significant to you. They may be the very one that God has chosen to do a major work in this city. It's amazing how many opportunities have been missed because we underestimated not human beings. We underestimated the power of God to work through human beings. And not only because we are chosen instruments, but because we will suffer with the church. He says to him, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias, you guys have already suffered here in Damascus. You've been under the threat of persecution from Saul. Well, let me tell you something. I'm going to convince Saul that no longer is he persecutor, he is persecutee. And indeed, that very day began the life of Saul, the persecuted, not the persecutor. And when you come to Christ, you, are, you should be taught right from the beginning. You now are going to face the opposition, the breathing out of threats against your own life because you're believers. And he says, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Notice, secondly, the church not only serves us, the church adopts us. Now, this is one of the most amazing phrases that you'll find in the text. Ananias departed, entered the house, laid his hands on Saul, and then what does he say? Brother Saul. That's an amazing phrase. Brother Saul. Saul trying to kill me, my family, my friends, and my fellow Christians. Brother Saul. The church adopts you just like God adopts you as son the church adopts you as brother. And you have the highest status anybody could be given by the church. The status of family member. The most common description of the church in the New Testament is the word brethren. It's the most common way in which we're referred to as a gathering of people. We're family. And that's what the church does for you and what you as the church must do for others. We have family ties. You know, when I go back to my family reunion, 
uh, sometimes at Christmas, but for me, not so much at Christmas because of my, my ministry, but during the summer, family reunion, and we're just as weird as you can imagine. We have dysfunctions going in all directions, all these childhood behavior patterns that come out with 60-year-olds that make us look absolutely ridiculous, like children. And it's just dysfunctional. But you know what? That's my family. There's something about family where you just, you just always belong. doesn't matter what they did to you when you were kids. And boy, my, my older brother did some stuff to me. I'm telling you what. doesn't matter what he did. He's my brother. And it doesn't matter whether my sisters uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or not. And they don't. But they're my sisters. And, and we're all just family. And their children are my nieces and nephews. And I have status in their lives. Now that will pass at the end of this age. But what won't pass is my brotherly relationship with the disciples of Jesus Christ. We're always family. You always belong. That's what we've got. And it's part of our conversion. We're converted not only to Christ, we're converted to the church. And I know some people who say, you know, this Jesus of yours, I really like him, but the church, I just don't think I could handle that. Well, until you're ready to handle it, you're not ready to handle Jesus either because these are his people. And when you come to him, he immediately plugs you into them. Now look, C, verses 17b through 19a, the church heals us. And you notice it physically and spiritually. So he lays hands on him. He prays for his sight to be restored. And scales fall off his eyes. He can regain his sight. He takes food and he was strengthened. The church cares about the physical needs of its members. You can't just gather on Sunday, worship the Lord, and the hungry go home and try to scrape for food again. No, you come to church to worship the Lord. And then you ask each other, how you doing? And you begin to take care of each other. Physically. In every respect. Nothing left out. And spiritually, notice that Ananias laid hands on him and Saul was filled with the Spirit. And we've already seen that the filling of the Spirit is the essential element of distinctive Christian leadership. If you're not asking the Spirit to come in and take over and guide your life, you can't lead as a Christian man. Saul there receives the infilling of the Spirit and then he is baptized by water, in the name of the Trinity, the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, engrafted sacramentally into the visible body of Christ. That was his conversion to Christ and to the church. Then lastly, or almost lastly, yeah, lastly, Christian conversion changes our relationship to the world. Oh, how important this is. When you get converted and you come to know Christ personally, it changes the way you think about him and about God, changes your relationship with Him, changes your relationship with the church here and around the world. It also changes your relationship to the world. I promise you, it changed Saul's relationship to the world. He now saw the world as the field of where God's love and forgiveness was to be expressed. He saw the world as a broken, broken humanity that desperately needed the help of a Savior. First of all, locally, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. But notice locally, number one, we proclaim Jesus. Immediately, he goes into the synagogue to preach. Now you say, how could he preach? Well, he knew a little theology. He, he knew it wrongly, but he knew some theology, knew some Bible. But the main thing he knew was Jesus Christ, whom he had just met on the road to Damascus. The main thing he knew was that his life had morally and spiritually been completely turned around. The main thing he knew is that he could trust Jesus with his life. And he had a message to proclaim, Jesus is the Son of God, he said. 
Notice, secondly, that he emulates Jesus. Because the people are saying, is this not the one who is wreaking havoc? What happened to this man? I remember when my good friend Sam Smart on Lookout Mountain was converted. He had been a, you know, number one hellraiser in college and right out of college. And when he got converted, it just rippled throughout all of Lookout Mountain, all of Chattanooga. As far as I know, he was a University of Georgia graduate. The entire South. You mean Sam Smart is converted? Well, yes, indeed, he's converted. And so can you. And everybody said, well, I guess so if Sam Smart can be converted. Right. And anyone who knows you well knows that's the same story with you. And that's what they were saying about Paul. He was emulating Jesus. His life had been changed around so that his life became exhibit A for his message. And then thirdly, we suffer with Jesus. Notice that Paul is immediately willing to suffer in the world. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Here we go. He's facing the persecution that Ananias was told about by the Lord. Now B, 26 through 31, we close with this. Not only locally, but globally. Paul leaves Damascus and goes to Jerusalem. And notice that he can't do this unless, number one, he partners wisely. Partners with whom? Barnabas. We'll see Barnabas again here in in several weeks. Barnabas. Paul goes to Jerusalem. Nobody believes that he's safe. Nobody believes he's actually, actually been converted. It's impossible for a man like Saul to be converted. I don't trust him. And Barnabas said, let me, let me talk to you about that just a little bit. God's salvation is so powerful. It even changes men like him. Let me get the two of you together. And some of you perform that function here. You're getting people together. And you need people like that. People like Saul have to have people like Barnabas. And then we communicate boldly, verses 28 and 29a. Once again, he disputes with the Hellenists. Who are the Hellenists? They're the ones that put Stephen to death, for heaven's sakes. And Paul goes right back to these Hellenists and disputes with them. And, of course, they want to kill him. Uh, Number three, we sacrifice gladly. Saul goes to dispute with the Hellenists. Why? Saul's a Hellenist. He cares about his own people. These are Greek-speaking Jews. That's exactly what Saul is. And the first place he wants to go is the people that he can help the most, even if it cost him his life. And that's exactly what he does when he's willing to lay down his life and sacrifice gladly, which we know at the end of his life he actually does. Now, there's much more to be said, but there's no time to say it. But gentlemen, here's the point. The most important moment in history since Pentecost was when Saul became the Apostle Paul. There's no doubt about it in my mind. And one of the most important moments in history in this city was when you got converted. And the most important moments in history ahead of us is when men that we know around us get converted. Because when they do, uh, the limitations of the good they can do are just as narrow as the limitations of God's character. And He is unlimited in His power and His goodness. And He can take a man whose life looks like a total disaster and turn it upside down and right side up and inside out and outside in and put them on the road to magnificent usefulness. And that's what he does with everyone who converts, who turns from the old way and turns to the Lord Jesus Christ and really trusts in Him. Let us pray. Lord, now send us out as men who have been changed and want to be changed even more. For those of us who have turned, may we continue to turn and turn more decisively and more rapidly and more profoundly that others around us may enjoy the blessings of the gospel until we see you face to face ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.